welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to whip through the IFRIC agenda for March, and I'm joined by the amazing Karsten Gansauger, who is our Interpretations Committee member. Welcome, Karsten. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, glad to be here. And I have been listening to your other amazing podcast that you did with Dave, but this is the first one we're doing together, so I'm very excited. Excited to be too. He doesn't look that excited, everyone. He's like, oh no, what's she going to ask me? Well, the good news is we haven't got about 52 agenda items to discuss. There are only four things on the March IFRIC agenda, so not too big. You weren't held up there for days. Let's start with something exciting new accounting standard, IFRS 16, very popular at the Interpretations Committee, I'd say at the moment. And this is a paper that's already been discussed before. And I think the uh, Interpretations Committee had asked the staff to do a bit more work around um, a sale and a lease back, um, where that lease back had entirely variable payments. So just in case people didn't dial in and watch you for a full day of entertainment, what happened? Give us an update. Right. So so this uh, gets me really excited. I've read 16 topics. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not lying, so, I'm afraid, everyone. <laughs> yeah. So, so Ruth, as you said, the uh, com- uh, submission was about a sales back transaction with uh, variable payments, where the submitter asked how the seller lessee measures the right of use asset arising from the lease back and any corresponding gain or loss arising uh, the date of the transaction. So this issue was already discussed by the committee back in November uh, of last year. And at the time, the committee generally agreed with the staff's analysis on the accounting uh, by the seller lessee for the transaction. Uh, However, the committee felt that the submission actually raises some broader questions beyond what was explicitly asked in the submission. That is the subsequent accounting for the liability arising from the transaction. Section. And so for that reason, uh, the committee asked the staff to further analyze the, you know, the subsequent accounting for that liability after the transaction. So there were quite a few discussions around the subsequent accounting for that liability. And so the committee did not make any formal decisions back in November and just asked the staff to do some, uh, some more analysis in relation to that. So, so really, there are two issues here. One is the how to account for the, for, for the transaction initially, and then two, how to subsequently measure the liability arising from the transaction. And, you know, whilst the submission only related to the first issue, the committee felt that the second question is related and should also be addressed, right? Because it clearly came up in the discussions and um, there are some, you know, some unanswered questions on the second part of the question. So so for the first question, the, the committee has now concluded on the matter and explained what to do at the date of the transaction. However, for the second question, uh, after some intense debate at the IFRIC, the, they concluded that it, you know, it could not any additional guidance on the subsequent accounting for the liability based on the existing guidance in IFRS 16, and thus that the committee could not add anything helpful in this regard in an agenda decision. Okay, and um, some great points at variable payments. 
It's never going to be a happy topic. I remember the Ifrit debate of variable payments on intangibles for about six years. Um, so I'm sure on leasing, it's equally as difficult. And I think the point there around, I actually see this not just in the interpretations committee, but in general accounting, where people focus on what the initial accounting treatment is of something, but they don't then think what, you know, think past day one and what's the subsequent treatment. So great that the Ifrit did look into that. Now, in the staff paper, they'd suggested uh, maybe putting through an annual improvement. How did the IC feel about that? Yeah, uh, actually, the the committee um, agreed with that recommendation because um, you know because the committee felt that there is not sufficient guidance in IFRS 16 currently that uh, explains clearly how the subsequent uh, accounting should work. Right. So so um, the 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 suggestion of the staff is you know um to to make some some annual targeted improvements uh, to better explain the requirements in IFRS 16 how the subsequent measurement of that liability would work so so i think we have pushed off a, um, a standard setting project where you know some wor further work will need to be done on the subsequent accounting for that liability. Brilliant. Okay, so a bit of standard setting activity there will be happy. Right. Annual improvement hopefully coming right. soon. What's that? <laughs> soon in accounting, 12 months? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I so, thought a couple of years is soon, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> no. Insurance no. world, but obviously for any, years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously for any improvements, uh, that's one of the reasons, right? Because it's yeah. uh, typically faster. Yes, get good. it done. So, topic number one: tick IFRS sixteen, exciting stuff. Topic two. Uh, we're not, by the way, listeners, this isn't the order. I don't think it was discussed in. We've just decided the order. Number two: deferred tax. You heard in my voice, not quite as exciting as IFRS 16, but maybe listeners love it. And specifically on undistributed profits of a subsidiary. This is a brand new paper. Tell us the issue. That's right. It's a brand new issue that has been submitted. And it was the first time that it was discussed by the committee. So perhaps the explaining the issue. So the, so the submitter asks in, in the submission how an entity in its consolidated financial statements account for deferred taxes related to uh, an investment in a subsidiary when the undistributed profits of the subsidiary give rise to taxable temporal differences and the entity expects the subsidiary to distribute its profits in the foreseeable future. And we're talking about a jurisdiction in which profits are taxable only when distributed. So the income tax rate applicable to undistributed profits would be 0%. And a 20% in that example, a 20% tax rate would apply to any profit distributions. Now, it's also worth mentioning that in, that in those jurisdictions, the distributions are taxable only once. So when you make a distribution from the sub to the parent, it's taxed at 20%. But then any ongoing distributions from the parent to its shareholders uh, are not taxed. And the tax um, paid by the subsidiary would be um, a tax liability in the subsidiary's financial statements, right, at the time it is distributed. So on this issue, there were basically two views presented. The first one is you would recognize no deferred taxes at all, uh, zero deferred taxes. Um, and the other view would be that you would recognize deferred taxes based on the tax rate that applies to profit distributions. So 20%. That's right, yes. And what did the IC say? 
so on this one, I think um, several committee members noted that the guidance in IS-12 should be applied from the perspective of the reporting entity. And uh, since the question relates to the accounting in the consolidated financial statements, uh, the reporting entity is the group, right? So that's quite an important ob observation in this context, because it means that you know any dividends that are paid from the sub to the parent is, is not a dividend from the perspective of the group. Yeah. Um, and, and as a result, the committee concluded that it would be inappropriate to recognize no deferred taxes. And instead, a deferred tax should be recognized at the rate that reflects the tax consequences of recovering its investment in the sub. So uh, using the tax rate applicable to distributions, 20% in the example above rather than zero. Okay, so perfect. So the committee concluded there is a, from always look at it from the reporting entity's perspective, there is a deferred tax liability. And in the specific scenario in the paper, that would be 20%. Exactly. Um, and next steps with that, they'll obviously a gender decision will come out and then people will have the opportunity to write in if they wanted to. That's right. Okay, so um, then on to again, not a new paper, something that's been debated for a long time. And I feel like two standards which might always be debated, maybe they're not best friends, is the interaction between hyperinflation, IS-29 and IS-21FX. And there were lots of papers here. I think there's been yeah. comment letters. What's 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 the down low on that one? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, quite a complex issue. And quite a few questions around, as you said, around the interaction of IS-21 and 29. Um, I will try to boil it down as quickly as I can. Um, <laughs> uh, it's only relevant for companies <laughs> with material operations and hyperinflationary economies, right? So that's I'll try to, to make this as short as I can. Uh, so basically, there were three issues around the interaction of IS-21 and IS-29. The first one is uh, uh, how an entity presents the restatement and translation effects in its statement of financial position. So IS-21 requires an entity to restate the results um, and financial position of a hyper, uh, hyperinflationary phone operation applying IS-29 before applying the translation uh, as set out in, in IS-21. And so this would include two effects. Uh, first one is a restatement resulting um, from IS-29. And the second one is the translation effect from IS-21, basically. So the um, yeah the closing rate under IS-21. And so the submitter asked how the entity would present the restatement and translation effects in a statement of financial position. So that, so first of all, on this one, I think it's important to note that IS-21 requires the recognition of exchange differences in profit or loss or OCI with no reference to equity, right? Because one of the approaches, approaches presented was actually to recognize everything in accordance with um, IS-29 directly with inequity. Uh, um, but the committee concluded on this one that, you know, whether in a hyperinflationary economy, economy or not, an entity would recognize foreign exchange differences, uh, you know, or that it would not be appropriate to recognize all translation differences directly in equity. Uh, now, there are different methods, um, two different methods that have been identified on how you could measure the um, foreign exchange differences. But I think the key message here is you would not recognize everything directly in equity. Uh, so you would have something in OCI. The second paper is actually about um, whether an entity would recycle the foreign currency translation reserve in equity when a foreign operation first becomes hyperinflationary. 
And uh, the committee concluded on this one that an entity would not recycle the foreign currency translation reserve at that point in time, but only when the, um, when the foreign operation is disposed of. Last topic was about the um, presentation of comparative amount, comparative amounts in the financial statements. And on that last uh, paper, the um, committee observed that uh, there was little diversity in practice. And in applying paragraph 42b of IS21, entities would generally not restate comparative amounts. And because you know the matter is not widespread, uh, no further work was done on this last question. Okay, so that paper now is officially closed is that it for the that's it now isn't that's it that's right that's right so 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 uh we will issue a, a final agenda decision on 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 all of these three matters brilliant is twenty one twenty nine is an interesting one because i think if it affects you it is like a mate it's really difficult to do but obviously it's you know not every company is going to have a material a material entity that sits in this area. Someone even tweeted me about this the other day and said, the interaction between IS21 and 29 melts my brain. I was like, <laughs> listening to the IFRIC then, I can't help you. <laughs> so shout out to my Twitter followers who love a bit of IFRS. Okay, we're going to end on a juicy one, Carson. For the people that have kept listening to us, they get excellent ex excitement at the end. IFRS 15. So this is a paper that's been going on for a while now, and it was on um, training costs to fulfill a revenue contract. And the IFRIT got 17 letters, I feel like that's a lot, written in to tell you what people thought about the IFRIT decision. Where did the staff get to on it? Where do we go? Yeah, on, on this one, um, you know, first of all, despite the heading, which refers to IFRS 15, the question really wasn't purely an IFRS, question, uh, IFRS 15 question at all. And that's because the issue really was about the scope of IFRS 15 and whether IFRS 15 is applicable to certain training costs or whether instead IS 38 would apply to these training costs. That, that really was the issue here. Um, right. So, so before going into the comment letter, I, I would briefly describe or remind people about the issue. So in, in the fact pattern that was submitted, uh, an entity enters into a contract with a customer in accordance with IFRS 15 uh, for the supply of outsourced, outsourced services. And in order to be able to provide these services to the customer, the entity incurs training costs to train its employees so that they understand the customer's equipment and processes and so on. And the contract then permits, the contract with the customer would permit the entity to charge to the customer the cost of training of the entity's employees, you know, at the beginning of the contract and whenever operations, um, customer operations are expanded. So that was the fact pattern submitted. And in, in considering the question, the committee observed that, first of all, in this fact pattern, you know, before assessing the criteria in, in IFRS 15, paragraph 95, the entity would first consider whether other standards would apply to these training costs. And then now, if you look at uh, the scope section of IS 38, it actually says that IS 38 applies for expenditure on training and specifically lists expenditure on training activities as an example of expenditure that would be covered uh, by um, IS 38. So for these reasons, the committee concluded that, you know, in this fact pattern, an entity would recognize, you know, would, would account for these costs under IS 38 mean IS-38, so would recognize as an expense when incurred the training costs. So 
coming back to your question on the comment letters, right? So we had 70, as you said, there were 17 comment letters on this issue. Now, if you ask how many agreed or disagreed, well, nine, nine respondents out of the 17 did agree with the uh, decision and also for the reasons set out in the tentative agenda decision. Four respondents disagreed. So that's not 17 yet. No, um, what did the others say? <laughs> So, so, so there were, yeah, so there were some others uh, saying that, you know, for two respondents actually did agree with the uh, committee's analysis, but, you know, did question the relevance of the accounting outcome of this. So they, so I think they really didn't like the outcome of this and suggested um, considering an amendment to IFRS standards. And then there were some other commenting on, you know, different fact patterns or asking the IFRIC to reconsider its uh, preliminary conclusions. So overall, I mean, you could say, I think, over mixed, mixed picture, but I, I would say more support, right? Because we, we, we just had four that clearly disagreed with the technical analysis. And, you know, at least 11 who, who uh, at least, you know, agreed with the analysis, even though they may not like the outcome. Okay, so broadly positive support. But look- yeah few that weren't so keen so what did the what did the staff or the staff suggested i think going ahead maybe making a few tweaks to the tentative decision but they were comfortable did the ic agree yeah that that's right that's right with and and um actually the the ic did agree with this recommendation i i think what's imp- what's perhaps uh, worth noting is that i think the you know the staff and the their analysis of the comment letters they pointed out quite a bit the issue around circularity that was raised by many of the comment letters. So there was a notion out there, I think, uh, with many saying, you know, it isn't, isn't, uh, aren't the scope sections of IS 38 and IFRS 15 kind of circular? And so I think that actually the staff did a very good job here to explain why there is no circularity. Uh, in particular, they highlighted the fact that you know, the scope section of IS-38 should be read in its entirety, uh, not just, you know, the refer- not just the paragraph 3i, I think it is referring to the scope out of transactions within the scope of IFRS 15, but you should read the entire scope section. And paragraph 5 of IS-38 specifically says that training costs are covered in IS-38. So I think that arguments con- convinced most of the, you know, committee med- members so um, whilst there were quite controversial discussions, I think when we discussed it initially, actually um, that, you know, I think committee members were quite convinced by that analysis in this staff paper, uh, explaining why there is no circularity for these training costs. And so at the end of the day, there was, you know, broad consensus, I think, um, amongst committee members that IS-38 would apply to these training costs. Brilliant. So agenda decision closed, training costs in this scenario again, you're yep. in IS-38. That's right. You had a busy IFRIC meeting. Lots of like, you're done, tick, complete a finisher in you, must have been very happy. Tick, 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 all done. <laughs> you could have yeah, a break. Cancel it, the it, April meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it never stops, right? New issues <laughs> coming in. So we get lots of interesting questions and I think we we will remain busy. Good. Well, it'd be boring if you weren't busy, wouldn't it? And do you know what I love then, Carson? You like, you literally know paragraph references, just chuck them out at me. Paragraph, I love it. Means I'm t- speaking to a true IFRS wizard. I never well, know paragraph references. <laughs> <laughs> I think if, I know if, you at, if you looked into this so deeply for you know for the discussions, <laughs> then uh, and it's not long ago, right? The, the free meeting was just two days ago. So I'd still forget by then. 
You're very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I think that's a lovely, short, nice little consent way for people to listen to what's going on at the Interpretation Committee if they don't have time to listen in um, or they prefer listening to reading the minutes. Um, so thank you so much for joining me, Carsten. We'll be back together in a month's time because you got another, like you said, you're busy, busy. Um, so thanks for joining and thanks for listening. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.